Hey, everyone. Welcome to our new show. It's called Political Soapbox with myself, Tom McDonough, and of course, my co-host, John Troxel. John, well, obviously, it's, it's great to actually do a show with you. I know I've actually interviewed you twice when I had another show. Um, so I, it was great. It's actually great to have you as a co-host because, you know, we had some really great discussions in that period of time. And I know one of the things you and I, we, we were just discussing it just now and have been discussing it for a while about the name. And, and I agree that, that one of the things that we were trying not to do was to create with the name was create so much with it, with turmoil, because politics brings egos, eccentrics, views from one side to the other. And you, it's funny enough, either one of us are very political in, in the ultimate end. Well, and it can fracture families. Exactly. In, in today's day, you know, yeah, that's, that's the funny part. It's been doing that since what you think about it. One of the things that was really great is that the, even at Disney, they did the one thing with the um, the American Venture at Epcot with the family during the Civil War and the dividing of the two brothers. And that's funny because it hasn't changed because politics divides families and they don't talk to each other over the fact that someone didn't like someone or doesn't like someone. And or else their points of view. And you're right. That, that was one of the things that I thought you said so appropriately was, you know, when it came down to it, people is yeah. what really matters to you and I. And in regards to what people's political views are, I care about what people think. I agree to disagree. Yeah. I mean, your point of view, because heck, people in Montana have a different point of view than people in New York. And, Absolutely. Or Texas or, or the other. And I think you and I were right about that. The, the, the word politics doesn't encompass, you know, what, what governs people globally in our, in our own country is what it really talks about. And I think that ultimately one of the things we, we were trying to send a message as this was to talk about motivation, leadership, yeah. about people uh, being, uh, building a better life for themselves, building a better community around them, being better part of a better person. And I think that's what this whole podcast and show really encompasses is about people becoming better people. And maybe globally, which is, I think social media, I think said it best social media. Now you and I can talk to someone all the way over in China or talk to someone at the same time and, and be able to get live information to where we weren't be able to do that 20 years ago. And I think that um, it, it is huge. And, so I think that yours and I's ultimate envision, and I'm going to ask you your thoughts on that. The envision part was building better people, being better people, and inventing better ways to do things, and talking to people about topics that matter. Yeah, I, think I agree with you. <laughs> yeah. So globalization, in my opinion, is a good thing. Yeah. So that, you know, uh, we can communicate all around the globe at any time of the day, 24-7. But I agree with you, Tom. You know, our nation is so polarized right now. And in some cases, the world, you know, is uh, affected by this polarization. And I think more and more to bring the country together or, and to, to uh, get us to back to the table of having healthy debates has to be we have to understand what is going on on all sides of an issue, you know, and, and what is the best course of action uh, for people. And so, uh, I think in the end, everything that you do and everything I do right now is centered around people. 
um, making people feel better about themselves, making people um, get out and, and reach their untapped potential um, and, and reach their goals and things like that. So, yeah, I think, you know, the political soapbox in the when people look at the name, think you and I are going to get up there and knife edge our guests and everything because they may disagree with us on some when it's really the exact opposite where we want to understand the points of view of people. You know, here I am, a guy that served 38 years in the military and uh, five combat tours. And I was able to have a conversation with a group of Antifa kids without it going, you know, going to blows or or all of a sudden law enforcement getting involved. OK, yeah. now we we are on polar opposites of our points of view of the United States of America. But I was able to have a conversation with these kids and we were all able to walk away without, you know, trying to kill each other. So yeah, I think that's arrested. what this show is about. Or it's we're nice. being worse. Yeah, being arrested, especially for me. I'm too old to be behind bars. Yeah, you and I both are yeah, too old for that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And, I, and so I, I'm excited on where we can take this. And what we can do to get people communicating again with without having hate involved in it, you know, where because you agree in one direction and another person agrees in another, that all of a sudden you are you are, you know, enemies. And and I think, you know, we got to get back to healthy conversation, healthy debate and figure out as we move forward here how to continue to make uh, our country better. And in the end, the people of the United States better. I agree. And the one thing is you think about the word politics, the reason that there was one of the, the, the discussions that is that politics is encompassed everything we do. We cannot do anything. People are in yeah. positions to choose what we can and cannot do in, in lives. And this has been since the beginning of recorded time. And I think that was one of the things we we have to take into consideration is that this is a this is a reality. We cannot escape politics at all. But politics doesn't mean that somebody stands up and is my president and tells me what to do. Like let's look at Ronald Reagan, classic example. He inspired yeah. us to be proud to be American. You know, yeah, that, that's where the thing is. It, it sometimes the inspiration comes from people inspiring us to do better things and inspiring us to be better citizens, inspiring us to be nicer to the people next to us, instead of telling us what to do. Where it seems to be a very big topic as of late, where they, the, especially the mass mandate, we all know that people will say, "Well, it's against my, you're infringing my invis- individual freedom." And then I always want to tell you that one of them is, did you read history? <laughs> because this isn't the first pandemic. These have been recorded in history. And maybe if you, if you were to read the history part of it, understand in 1918, they had four years without school and they all wore masks. Yeah. And, and but yeah. again, they, they think it's just something new. So I think that ultimately was trying to inspire people to understand each other. And you're right back to healthy debate. I would have said it would have called it the, the debate soapbox because again, soapbox started in 1872 in England where people got yeah. up on top of a box and spoke their point to a large crowd. I would have said debate, but unfortunately when you use the word debate, everyone thinks it's a argument back and forth. So <laughs> yeah. I, I always want to say that debate should be again, where people work, our guests can come on and tell us their point of view, regardless if you or I agree with them, they still have the point, the ability to say that their point of view and I think all yeah. points should be heard, regardless of what the point is. I mean, even if I, I granted there's some out there that I wouldn't say that are logical because I don't agree with them. But I'm not going to sit there and tell them that their point of view is minuscule and that I don't I don't value it because I value them as individuals. 
So I, yeah. I agree with you on that. And it's funny that the the Antifa uh, kids were so hard with you about that, about the points of talking. And I agree. There's a there's a big rift in differences on, especially in our age group versus this younger generation. But again, I think we had the same thing when we were their age with the age group that is ours. And there's always that big gap in generations. Um, it's just sad that uh, yeah. wish, wish they could understand when we came, we, we were their age at one time and understand these things. But when you get to our age, you'll understand it <laughs> more. I like well, to when, when I engage, when I engage in conversation with these guys, the first thing that was going through my mind is how bad do I want to get my ass kicked here? So let me, let me see if I engage in a conversation. Yeah, can we and so it was a, it, it was a, I, I will say, um, civil to the point that we weren't, you know, trying to, you know, cause harm to each other. But uh, I could tell there was, uh, you know, I absolutely disagreed with their points of views and they absolutely disagreed with me. And uh, so um, we left it at that. But the bottom line is we had a conversation and, you know, in a, a 57 year old retired military guy having a conversation with a 22 year old kid who just graduated college and uh, and we are on opposite sense of opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of what yeah. we think about the United States of America. But at least we had the conversation uh, again. Um, he's not going to send me a Christmas card and I'm not going to send him a Christmas card. But in the end, we were for that moment in time, we had a conversation that didn't end up in violence or or anything else. You know, that was a good thing. Yeah, because yes, both sides got absolutely. hurt. Well, so yeah. important. And, yeah. and I believe you and I both agree on the same thing. We both love our country. We want Absolutely. to see our country be a better place. And, and right now, I think the traumatic part of our country, and I think this is why something like this is important, our country is so divided on so many subjects, especially since COVID has happened, that I think that it's, 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 it's scary across the board that our country's kind of, the threads are pulling out from many different angles where we need to put them back together and become a much more organized group of people understanding that all of us have problems and we can help each other a bit more. I'd like to see that a bit more, but I, I know I have lofty goals and ideas in life, but uh, you know, Hey, we, we, without dreams and hopes, well, there, what's the point of living, right? Uh, yeah. So I, I think that we all need dreams and hopes. And I, I always hope to see that our country would come together as a much stronger country and really move forward and eliminate homelessness eliminate a poverty education differences. And, and, you know, this, this, I could go down a list of mirrored, you know, long list, but ultimately I think I'd rather see all of us have a much better life together. And I think, and I know you believe that 100%. Um, you have, speaking of this for your, for your background, you're, you're, you had all those years, 38 years in the military, right? It's a lot of years. You were in one of the most, and one of the most, most officers had to basically salute to you because of your position ah. in the military. <laughs> they won't. They won't admit it, but yeah, no, it's no. amazing though. You you gained you garnered a lot of respect in that. You spent a lot of time. You had many different experiences um, throughout your career in different um, zones. And you have five combat uh, uh, missions. It's a lot, uh, and one of them yeah. was in, one of them was in Afghanistan. Um, yeah. which obviously was, which obviously in the 20 years we spent there, which has become an extremely hot, hot topic. Um, ironically, you know, and I've had many years in radio. 
I've had many years in entertainment. I did a ton in, in music. Um, I will tell you this one thing when, for certain, as I tr- have a whole bunch of interns who will tell you this, I, I do uh, have, what, 46 interns on the music end, and I have, right now on the political end, we have 20. So I will tell the ter- interns the same thing. There is a very thin line between politics, Hollywood, and music. The industries are very much blended, and they need each other. Regardless of how we look at it, it is that we live in an entertainment world, no matter how you look at it. News is entertainment anymore um, because yeah. of video and then because of the presentation and getting people garnered into, into watching it and, and, and investing in it. YouTube, all these TikTok, all these things these kids have. And I think that, you know, background of that and your background in the many years in the military is certainly brings a lot to the table for us to bring to bring guests on and discuss and have um, definite discussions about issues that really are important to us. Um, yeah. And in that, in your 38 years, I have to ask one question out of those 38 years in the 38 years. And in your retirement, were you, were you not wanting to retire and continue on your, your, um, the rest of your thing, or were you were finally ready at 38 years saying, okay, now I can relax and sit back. Out of curiosity, I'm just wondering so, that. Well, I think, you know, um, I think uh, serving my last four years in Washington, D.C., absolutely humbled to serve as the senior enlisted advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Secretary of Defense and serve as the senior enlisted person in the DOD. I was humbled. I was honored. And I loved the job, you know, for four years. But I think four years in anything you do in Washington, D.C., uh, I think is enough. Now, I'm not I'm not implying that, you know, um, we shouldn't have reelections of our president or that. You know, I mean, look at General Milley. He was the chief of staff of the army for four years. And now he's two years in as the chairman and he's got two more years to go. When it's all said and done, he will have had eight straight years in, in Washington, D.C. I mean, hats off. But I, I thought four years was enough. It was enough. I had I had accomplished what I wanted to accomplish, which was to give that position irreversible momentum. It, it came out, you know, I, I, not everything was beer and Skittles for me as the SEAC, you know, and I spent some time uh, suspended, you know, but in the end, uh, it, you know, I think I walked away at the right time and, uh, and retired. I, I couldn't go. There was no other job I could go for. So I had to retire. But uh I think if General Milley would have asked me to stay another year, I would have tried to talk him out of it because I think four years is enough and it's time to give somebody else the, the job. So, and especially, I will tell you, Washington, D.C., the Pentagon and things like that, it can be a very contentious environment to operate in, especially if you're someone like me that is uh, someone that focuses totally on war fighting, lethality, readiness, fitness all of the things that makes our military great and be the most respected uh, military arm in the world and, and the partner of choice for peace and, and stability and security. Um, but um, yeah, four years was enough. And I think uh, my wife will tell you we retired at the right time because she was ready to go. So I can um, understand that. Yeah. From one of you. Uh, yeah 38 years of yeah. what you did. And, and again, I want to thank you for your service with that because you know, again, our military oh, men and women, yeah, they definitely, you know, it's a tough job um, from the from yeah, people yeah. the front lines to, uh, to from not. And with Afghanistan, you were there from almost from the beginning. 
literally from the beginning. And in the position you were at the very end, you were in the position to where you write with the withdrawal. And ironically, unfortunately, we're the military is always well planned and does everything so greatly to a, such a great detail to most people say it's almost to a fault. But public opinion, obviously, in the latest thing with our withdrawal turned what what happens on the ground doesn't always mean that it's planned into A, B, C, and D and fits in a box. Clearly, yeah, yeah. the events on the yeah. ground played out much faster than the U.S. military could ever have guessed. The I, I guess I'm the the thing that really hurts me was the most of the Afghanistan military disintegrated and literally disintegrated to the point where they the Taliban. I like to know where the Taliban get all that money. To pay, I don't know how. Maybe a way. You might, I don't even know if that's true. How about that? The rumors were that they paid off, paid them off to join into the things. Who knows if that is true or not? Because you're right. I wasn't there, and you weren't there to watch the money transfer hands. So I guess I won't say that it was a definite. But it was an ultimately, I guess, disappointing fact in the 20 years that the U.S. spent in there that we that that country dis- disintegrated before we even got out of there. And then, so, uh, yeah, yeah, I think, Tom, what, what we have to understand is, you know, Afghanistan for decades was a monarchy, you know, yeah. I mean, they had a king and everything. And then in the 70s, you know, um, when the, the king died, you know, they kind of had some internal strife going on until the Soviet Union invaded, you know, in, in 1979. And now for nine years, all the Afghan people knew was conflict, you know, and it was conflict from the sense of the Soviet Union imposing their will on the Afghan people and the Mujahideen, you know, the freedom fighters there uh, led by a guy named Ahmed Shah Massoud, you know, were fought back and they fought back valiantly. And then the entire uh, country, you know, with uh, the Mujahideen fighters fought back and the Russians never reached any of their goals. And then they ultimately had to withdraw, you know, and then shortly after that, you know, you had more strife. And then an incident happened in Southern Afghanistan that caused the rise of the Taliban, Mullah Muhammad Omar and, uh, you know, the Taliban, Talib meaning student, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so when they came to power, they immediately imposed Sharia law, you know, women had zero rights, uh, the misogyny that they practiced was the most uh, brutal in the world. And you still had this guy named Ahmed Shah Massoud, the Lion of the Panjshir, that was fighting back. And, uh, you know, as the Taliban continued to uh, do their kind of work in terms of uh, oppressing people, this is when Osama bin Laden started rising up and Al Qaeda started rising up. You know, and we had incidents in the past with the first World Trade Center bombing in 93. Yep. You know, we had uh, the Kobar Towers incident a couple of years after that. And all of a sudden, Bin Laden became a big deal. And he was hiding out in, in the Sudan at the time. Yeah. Well, as, as we and, and the international community was starting to come after him, he had to find a place uh, to, to be at that he could have sanctuary and safety. And he found it in Afghanistan. You know, the the Taliban are Pashtun uh, tribe and the Pashtun Wali, the code they live by. One of the tenets is that if I invite my friend in to my country or to my house or something, then I will fight to the death to protect my friend. 
So when 9-11 happened, oh, by the way, the day before 9-11, Al-Qaeda, knowing what 9-11 was going to cause, they killed Ahmed Shah Massoud, the number one guy that would have been the ally of the U.S. for an Afghan invasion. So when 9-11 happened, you know, the Taliban could have made this easy if they would have just gave up bin Laden because we went went into Afghanistan not to have a fight with uh, the Taliban or a fight with you know, for women's rights and all this stuff. We went in there to specifically get bin Laden and those Al Qaeda terrorists yeah. uh, that were responsible. Now, you know, we got uh, college Sheikh Mohammed, the mastermind of it uh, right away. And he's been in, uh, you know, Guantanamo Bay for 20 years now. Um, and we got everybody except for bin Laden and uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri, who is now the number one guy in Al Qaeda. We still haven't gotten him, but the point is, if we would have got bin Laden right, right off the bat, we wouldn't have went into Afghanistan. But so the minute you go into a country like that um, and you're on the ground, now you, you just own everything that's going on in that country. Yeah. And so we knew not to make Afghanistan a safe haven, that we had to bring some kind of stability to the Afghan government and to the Afghan security forces so that they could protect the uh, citizens of Afghanistan. And when we went into that country, you know, the uh, mortality rate was in the 40s. You know, the average age was uh, between 45 and 50 that, you know, an Afghan person lived. Yeah. Because of the lack of access to health care and everything. The literacy rate was just unbelievable, especially for women and girls. It was less than 10 percent. And over the course of our two decades of being there, you know, we continue to assist the Afghan government. Don't get me wrong. It's corrupt as all get up. Yeah. But we continue to assist the Afghan government so they could assist the people. The Afghan security forces continued to build and controlled major population centers and were taking the fight not only to uh, the Taliban, but also to ISIS and Al Qaeda. And, uh, you know, the access to health care across the country uh, just continued to grow. And so the mortality rate ended up in the 60s, where it is now. The literacy rate is up to about 70% across the population. And the key thing on all of this, Tom, is that in the 20 years that we were there, there was not one planned, prepared, exported, and executed terrorist attack in the United States. There was not a repeat of 9-11. And so when you talk about how warriors think, Uh, and how the military thinks. Um, People say we were in war for 20 years. I will submit to this. In 2011, we started the withdrawal. I was the ISAF, International Security Assistance Force, Joint Command, Command Senior Enlisted Leader. I worked for Lieutenant General Mike Scaparotti. And we were responsible for all of the regional commands, and we were responsible for the initial drawdown of troops. It was like around 125,000 to about 115,000 in the year we were there. And over the years, we executed this disciplined, orderly withdrawal of troops. And when I came into the Pentagon in 2015, we were down to about 15,000. Big difference from the original. Yeah, from the original 125,000 during what we called the surge in 2011 and everything, 2010-11. So, and those conditions I talked about were still the same. Afghan government, albeit corrupt, still in control, 
major population centers controlled by uh, the Afghan security forces. The Taliban did have influence in the hinterlands and especially in southern Afghanistan. But we continued to build the military. They uh, started their own West Point uh, kind of Sandhurst Academy to train military officers to include first women graduates. There were women uh, general officers that were uh, in the armed forces now and in the law enforcement. So all of this stuff was going. So we were in 15,000. And over my four years as a SEAC, we went from 15,000 to 2,500. And the key through all of this was then not only were we building the Afghan army, but the Afghan Air Force and the Afghan police forces. But we were constantly putting pressure on terrorist organizations like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and the Taliban by conducting counterterrorism kind of stuff. We were continuing to support with air power and armed drones and logistics and things like that to the Afghan government. In 2014, we changed the mission from Operation Enduring Freedom uh, to what the mission was now, which was post-military. Yeah. And so when, you, when you're at 2,500, and though all of those conditions are still the same, but then all of a sudden, you know, we come up with a plan that we're going to go to zero. And the plan should have been conditions-based, not time-based. Correct. And all of a sudden in April... Uh, it became time-based. And at a certain point, we went from 2,500 to zero minus a small security element for the embassy. And in John's opinion, um, that was the wrong thing to do. And it was, uh, we took this disciplined orderly withdrawal. And oh, by the way, we hadn't had a combat casualty there. We had not had a U.S. death since February of 2018, or excuse me, 19, so two years, okay? And all of a sudden, we do this disorderly kind of exit, and the Afghan security forces crumble. I will tell you that the minute you pull that air power off, the minute you pull that advise and assist off, and the minute you pull that counterterrorism pressure off, and all of that went away, the Taliban just the integrated. Took yeah, they integrated in society and, and got well. They, they just they just took over. Uh, yeah, they went from controlling hinterlands to controlling uh, regional population centers to major population centers, and their march to Kabul, where ultimately they took over. Here's the thing we've learned, though, and um, too many times uh, we look at these countries like Afghanistan and others around the world through our U.S lens yeah. and through our what we de- determine as freedom and our cultural lens and it's it's uh it's kind of dangerous to do that all right because uh when people said uh oh, i can't believe you know the afghan security forces forces fell um i think if you ask anybody that served there as a squad leader platoon sergeant platoon leader company commander or anything if they had confidence without us being there and our other coalition partners from the NATO nations, would the Afghan security forces stand their ground? I think, uh, you know, the vast majority would have said they are going to collapse. So my point to all of this is um, we're in an era now of great power competition with China and Russia. We have to respond to crisis with nations like North Korea and Iran, and certainly terrorism hasn't gone away just because we ain't in Afghanistan you know, and that we're lowering our numbers in Syria and Iraq and other places. 
the terrorism is still an issue we have to deal with. So I think we have to redefine, was this a 20-year war? In John's opinion, it stopped being a war really uh, in about 2014 because over the past seven years, the ones that were really doing the combat, don't get me wrong, I mean, there were you know rocket and mortar attacks and things like that going on our advise and assist forces, but our special operations forces were the ones that were doing the real fighting. And, yeah. and they were the ones that were keeping the pressure. So when we look at the world we live in today with the threats that I just described, it's kind of hard to, to say, you know, we, we need to end this 20-year war and, and then walk away from it uh, without there being consequences. And I think, yeah. you know, with somebody like the Taliban who, you know, loves to have good friends like uh, Al-Qaeda they and ISIS don't get along, but they certainly aren't going to stop each other from causing harm on us and any other Western kind of country. I think uh, what you're going to find, and I'll tell you, even our senior military leaders, I think uh, knowing them and then I know them, their recommendation was to leave a force there. Yeah. And in the end, a decision was made that said, hey, we're getting out. And when the boss, ultimately, the president says, we're getting out. Those military leaders yeah. own it. They own it, you know, and they speak in the first person with it. That's what a military leader does. And so Austin, Millie, McKenzie, all of those guys owned it and uh, and executed the mission. And I will tell you, I just spent a lot of time with the 82nd Airborne Division and, and uh, a lot with my good friend, uh, C.D. Chris Donahue, the 82nd Airborne Division commander, the last yep. guy out of Afghanistan. And it was, that was incredible. By the way, that was an incredible thing when he walked out. That was powerful when he did. Yeah. That. So when you look at the work, the mission that they were handed, uh, the uh, retrograde force there, you know, our, our soldiers, our paratroopers, our Marines and airmen and sailors that were all there. Um, it was just some phenomenal work that they did to execute that retrograde and that uh, non-combatant evacuation operation under the, some of the harshest conditions where now you're working with our, our arch enemy, the Taliban, to yeah. get out of there. So none of this, how all of this panned out um, is at the feet of Chris Donahue or any of those phenomenal warriors or certainly uh, none of our military leaders, um, because they did some phenomenal work. So my point, I roll all of that up, Tom, to say that we've got to look at the world differently now and that the United States of America and our partners and allies and NATO and things like that, we've got a target on our back across the elements of national power, not just militarily, but economically, diplomatically and in the information domains. People like China and Russia are looking to build competitive advantages in all of those elements of national power. And certainly North Korea and Iran, especially Iran through the use of its proxies, are going to look for ways to attempt to, you know, least a case scenario, piss us off, worst case scenario, uh, bloody our nose. And then ultimately, yeah. ISIS and Al Qaeda and those terrorist organizations, they ain't going away. And no. so um, we're going to have to continue to combat that radical ideology. Um, so I say all that to say we are an expeditionary military, and that's not going to change in the future. 
and men and women in uniform are going to have to continue to deploy to have some kind of an effect on a potential adversary or an adversary, whether that's just uh, providing security force assistance to another country that will allow them to continue to build their ability to defend their sovereign country, or whether it's to fight and win in combat, or it's to be part of a coalition uh, that will uh, continue to either contain or deter any of these kinds of uh, threats that may come our way. And I think that's how we have to look at the world. We, we're not going to, I love it when citizens say, until all the troops come home. Well, that's a noble phrase and a noble cause. But if we have all the troops at home, we are going to be very vulnerable to those adversaries I just talked about. We will feed competitive advantages uh, because those uh, anti-access aerial denial platforms that we've had before, the Atlantic and the Pacific, and certainly we've already talked about the globalization with uh, the Internet and everything. All of that stuff is gone as a protective barrier. And so we have to be expeditionary in nature to make sure that we're continuing to, to defend our freedom, our homeland, our way of life, and especially that of our partners and allies. And I agree. And in, in speaking, when you, were, you made a valid point about Russia and China and, and the competitiveness and think about what most Americans don't know about is the one China road. The, the, the infrastructure buildup between Russia and China and what they've done in 70 countries is, is phenomenal on a grand scale in competitiveness to the EU. And it's basic competitiveness against the U.S. dollar and the, and the, and the euro. And I think that is another aspect that they've done outside of just militarily. And we've seen we see it a lot in the news lately about militarily, but look at what they've done economically. And I think that's where America and Americans are just going to have to start realizing that this is a the world's very big. And, yes. right. and, and you and I'll tell you what, the great lineup of some of the things you said about how we as Americans look at everything through our own uh, as, as rosy glasses of, of America and how we see freedom in the world's a big place. And I think that was well said, well placed in how you did that, because that was exactly the best thing and, and truly a statement of that we looked at that way and how freedom should be and how people should live as the way we live. And that may not always be the thing. Maybe we have something to learn from them as much as they have something to learn from us. Yeah. So, yeah you know, I, one of the things I talk about all the time is uh, people, you know, the United States, you know, the, the, the rest of the world loves the United States, except for those, you know, that we talked about that want to compete against us, that want to cause us harm and, and stuff like that. But you see a lot of people trying to find their way into the United States of America. Yeah. You know, on, on makeshift rafts, um, by climbing over razor wire and everything to get in. These caravans that come from Central and South America and everything. I haven't seen any American lately make a makeshift raft off the coast of Florida and try to get to another country to try to get to a socialist country or anything like that. So, and when I was the SEAC and I would travel around the world, um, especially into Africa, and I would go to countries like Kenya, Somalia, and places like that. And I would talk to our leaders there, you know, the ambassador, the U.S. ambassador and things. And they would tell me, you know, and, and show me the Chinese influence in those countries now in terms yeah. of building infrastructure, infrastructure, um, yes. providing loans at an exorbitant interest rate, you know, what uh, a lot of people now call predatory economics, 
And when those loans can't get paid back, then the Chinese will either militarize some things in the in the country and stuff like that. So I think uh, when we look at that, we as the United States have to look at that as, hey, we better get busy and start investing and helping these countries in places like Africa a lot more, um, not only to help those countries to be better, but also to protect ourselves from this China Belt Road Initiative and, yeah, and the things initiatives, like that. You know, yeah. And the Russian adventurism. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And that, that is true. This is hand and foot. And I think that's what most American most Americans on the average don't understand this. If they we don't compete at some point, it's like going out and playing a if we play American football. If the team goes out and the defense doesn't show up, eventually the offense can't carry the team. The defense it, there's the other team's gonna keep scoring. Eventually, you're going to lose the game, and you know, in, in that same thing, and it gets, and we, and losing is never fun, and, right. and in sports games. So ultimately, the same thing as us losing the way of life that we've known it, or around us, or, or something threatens it. I think it, it is validly important that we pay attention to economics, to military, to how the military look at the the increase in the hypersonic missile and all these other things that have come out oh, yes. completely come out, but they're a little bit, the technology is pretty advanced. We got to take note of this. And I think um, that's where an honest discussion has got to come from, from Americans to understand this and, and come together on this, that we have to really compete globally and help you right and help other nations to help ourselves. In the yeah. Ultimate. One of the things that I, I still live by today that I've always lived by is that, the more you read, the more you learn, the more you learn, the more you understand, the more you understand, the more you can give a legitimate opine on something. Yeah. So a great book that I would offer to our viewers is called The 100 Year Marathon. Uh, and it's a book by Michael Pillsbury. And it's about China's 100 year march to dominate the world and yeah. to replace us as the global power. When you look at, you know, something as simple as a McDonald's food chain. And where that is globally, you can go almost to any country in the world and, get your and you can go to McDonald's and get your, your Big Mac. It might be something called something different, you know, in places like Germany or France, you know, but it's still a McDonald's chain. China wants to have their fast food restaurants to replace like the McDonald's around the world as, yeah. as that. And any of the other things that we have globally that are easily recognizable uh, names around the world. And, and then, you know, uh, you, you, you add that with the same thing and you already described it with what Russia is doing as well. We have to understand that, uh, you know, the world is not a rosy place anymore. And the average citizen has to understand that in order for us to continue with who we are as a nation, that we've got to compete. And competition includes, you know, as you described, diplomacy, economics, military, and in the information space. Because uh, we, do, we don't do a good enough job in the information space of telling the true story. No, no I agree. That, that, that's uh, sometimes our freedom of um, freedom of media sometimes works for us and against us at the same time. So that, that can yeah. go in, in a different direction. Because, again, if you watch... Fox News versus CNN News, the same news story could be told in two different ways because of the the, the structure of the the, uh, the news agencies as they are or in the setup and, and their points of view, I suppose. 
I guess I'm trying to say it nicely about <laughs> how they how they present things, but their presentations and, and again back to the entertainment sector of the they're inter- to, to present it to people they have unique points of view, and you getting different line line sources it's the same thing. So you have to, we have to you're right as a as a collective come down to and, and start working more together as a collective to be able to educate not only Americans but the people of the world about what the message that America should be instead of what sometimes is, is being portrayed. Um, I don't think what the Taliban and, and the rest of, and some of the uh, like ISIS and them have portrayed us as is quite the true story. And we all know that here, but ultimately does every other country in the world really truly know that, uh, especially in the mid East. Um, I mean, it seems to be a, a big misconception sometimes in some of the countries but not every country and not every person. I, I think that it comes down to the, each individual has their own beliefs. Um, but yeah, you're right. Governments change in, in many sectors of the world. And we have it's to be on top of it. It's interesting in Afghanistan, you mentioned uh, the Taliban and, and their attitude towards us, as well as Al Qaeda and ISIS, that the United States can come into a country, you know, not for the reason uh, that we went into Afghanistan for. The reason was to you know, deny a terrorist safe haven and to get after the people responsible for 9-11. But, you know, all of a sudden, the people have hope. The people aren't starving. The people have health care. The people have education. The yeah. people have opportunities to grow and develop as a family. But that's not that doesn't mean anything to people like the Taliban. You invaded this country. You know, you, you know, you are not a guest in this country. Yeah. They will never get past that, even though the people of the nation are have a much better quality of life. They will never get beyond that. The Americans are here and we don't want them here. You know, as far back as 1990, you know, when uh, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in August of 90, you know, and I'm, I'm a Desert Storm veteran, too. When we sent forces there and we were a part of this, um, you know, Western and Arab coalition to oust Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, we had to be so difficult or I mean, so delicate with how we did that for fear that we were going to, you know, upset the Arabs on what we were doing there when we were there to bring the sovereignty back to the Kuwaiti citizens and to Kuwait as a country, you know, but when you're dealing in the Middle East and you said it earlier, Tom, I mean, it can it's very delicate on how you do business there. And again, you can't look at things through an American lens when you're trying to deal with people who are 10,000 miles away from where you're at, different part of the world, different culture and and things like that. Exactly. Trying to trying to, um, to respect their culture as well, which is the most delicate thing I think American diplomacy has is trying to get that and not present what the news, probably what these people are seeing on our news media as being what Americans yeah. are. So I think it, it is very, it's a, again, like I say, going back to the news media, it is a good, it's a double-edged sword. Um, it serves as the evidence or even our movies in Hollywood serve as our yeah. evidence is what America is about. And I mean, I guess everyone, uh, you know, but going back to when you and I were younger, I believed everyone thought that everyone, we thought that John Wayne was the right thing and that everyone, it was a, it was a Western and we go in and, you know, and, and we save the day and, you know, save the damsel in distress. 
And I think that's what a lot of the rest of the world thought of us because we all, John Wayne was just a hero, you know, a hero on the screen doesn't quite mean what America is truly about or what the average American citizen's about, but we portray that in, in what we do in our presentation and in our media. And since yeah. now media, everything's media based, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough battle. It's a double-edged sword for us. Um, so yeah, definitely. Uh, I think that, you and I will have a, a lot of things presented. We'll have guests. Obviously, we'll have a guest each week on the, on the show. We're going to be able to present different things and have our guests talk about. Um, and hopefully, we'll have extremely um, difficult you know, um, issues to talk about. But at the same time, have a consensus of how, you know, I always say, don't bring problems, bring solutions. You know? Yeah. Always bring solutions to the table. And then I think that would be what I like to see ultimately with even with our guests is bringing solutions to the table and all things. Uh, Same thing with the website. I think that, you know, the one thing with the website where we have the the podcast and it will go out everywhere else. But at the website, I want to bring uh, factual information and bring in bring solutions to do things into understanding. You know, we have one article on informed voters guide. Simple. What do you need yeah, when yeah. you go to vote? And, and these things that that are important. I think that uh, for people and other subjects we want to bring to it. I think that'll be the same thing with the show. So I, I I look forward to having each one of our guests. So I want to pre-thank them all before they come on. Um, yeah. And and again, I uh, it's, it's great. Like I said, after having uh, all the interaction with you and interviewing you, it's great having you as a co-host. Um, uh, I'm on the excited show. to be here. So yeah, yeah. definitely. You have two uh, other shows too, as well. It's one of my, yeah. the E-Tool Nation. Yeah, he's wearing a t-shirt for Nation podcast and, you know, um, you know, and then I also have another one called Leader Talk. And, uh, you know, one of the things I think our nation needs a lot of right now is leaders just like we're doing here leaders in different aspects of uh, either business or the military or whatever coming in and giving us their philosophy on how to get after things you know and how to be successful how to build a business how to build cohesion on a team whatever it might be i think uh so that's what i do on leader talk as well so I'm excited to be here. I think we're going to have a great time with this. And in the end, I hope that our audience walks away saying every week uh, when I tune into the political soapbox, uh, it's causing me to say, you know what? I need to think about uh, what the other side is thinking on this, you know, and everything. Exactly. You know? Yeah. And You're listening and, more active listening. Yes. Instead of, yeah. instead of talking over something. Close minded. Yeah. Active listening over close minded talking. Exactly. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So. <laughs> we, we, we can cover each other on these things. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, definitely. So de- definitely turn it, uh, tune in each week um, and we'll have you know new guests on and, and exciting new shows. Uh, and hopefully, uh, you know, we always want to hear from you. So definitely uh, contact us. You can contact us at uh, contact at uh, political soapbox.org. Um, and definitely contact us and give us your ideas. I always like to hear positive and negative because, Negatives can be changed to positives. Absolutely. So I yeah. love I love both sides. So definitely reach out to us and give us some of your points of view. And I'll, you know, definitely willing to listen to anybody. So uh, thank you for tuning in to our obviously our first show for our introduction. Um, and uh, look forward to uh, seeing you each week. We'll see you all soon. Yeah, tune into the political soapbox here because uh, Tom and I are going to get after some critical issues in our nation. And let's continue to make uh, the United States of America 
greatest nation in the world by coming together as a nation. Exactly. Together as is one, one nation together as one people. Boom. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, sir. <laughs> All and right, everyone have a great night.